Uh, it's great to be with you. My name is Matt. For those of you who I haven't met, uh, we are continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me to John 13, verse 18, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, if you were here with us last week, you know that Jesus is sitting down to his final meal with his disciples, and this entire time sort of kicks off with a provocative and uncomfortable moment. As Jesus uh, gets up, removes his outer clothing, takes the position of a slave in the ancient world, and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And he's uh, displaying the, uh, the love and grace of the Father. He's blessing and honoring uh, the disciples, uh, even though they have not uh, earned that or don't deserve what he's lavishing on them. Uh, but during this exchange that we studied last Sunday, there's this moment when Peter shifts from rejecting the foot washing gift because it's too uncomfortable for him and too out of the box. He just doesn't like it. But then there's a moment, if you remember from last week, where he almost shifts and goes the other way, where he sort of catches wind of like something clicks in his mind and he realizes, oh my gosh, like the son of God is, is washing us, is cleansing us. And, and he, run, he kind of flips the other way and he says, well then Lord, wash all of me. Like, like cleanse all of me. I, I want this type of blessing. And Jesus responds, there's almost this throwaway comment in the narrative where Jesus responds to Peter and he says, essentially, I've already made you pure. He says, quote, you are clean, though not every one of you. And he just kind of tosses that out and then he goes right back to what he was doing before, talking about the foot washing and how to mimic him in this counterintuitive life of discipleship that he's inviting us into. But as we pick up in the narrative today, he's continuing to talk to his disciples and he's actually circling back to that comment and addressing what this means. So, so picture he's saying, you are clean and pure, though not every one of you. And then he continues building on that thought in verse 18. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, 
Do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, uh, we lay our lives before you this morning. Uh, we thank you for this uh, narrative that we have, that we can, uh, in a sense, almost stand at that final meal with Jesus and the disciples. And I pray, God, that as we uh, watch Judas depart into the night and contemplate uh, what that means and why it happens, Lord, I pray it would be brought home in our hearts. I pray that you would uh, stir something in us that we uh, would, would long to be in that position of, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that we would watch this scene and find ourselves uh, right here in the midst with a place at the table, so to speak, as we uh, lean into who you are. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as everyone settles in for the Passover meal, the disciples are enjoying time in the presence of Jesus. Uh, John, the author of this gospel accounts, is right there in the center, leaning against Jesus as they recline around a table, ancient Near Eastern style. But all of a sudden, the group is set on edge. The uh, air grows thick with confusion as Jesus announces uh, with a heavy heart that someone will betray him, uh, someone from right there in their inner circle. And what should have been a beautiful Passover meal is now wrought with tension. Uh, what are you talking about? Who could this be? They all begin to look around and question one another. Uh, but it says they are at a loss to know which one of them he meant. Uh, apparently, Judas was not an obvious candidate, even assuming it would be one of them, but neither was anyone else in the group. So they're almost looking around trying to suss out, wait, who, who would do something like that? And finally, Peter motions to John. He just has to know. So he says, hey, John, ask Jesus, just whisper to him and ask him which one he means. Like, this is serious if someone's going to betray him. We need to sort this out. And Jesus says, hey, watch me carefully. As I go around and I hand out these things, I'm going to do something a little different. I'll signal to you uh, which one of the disciples is going to betray me. And it says he gives that piece to Judas. And we're told in the narrative that Satan entered Judas in that moment and began directing him toward the betrayal which is kind of odd language, uh, if we're honest, right? Uh, for the most part, uh, in the Western church, we kind of downplay the reality of spiritual warfare and avoid uh, reference to Satan. That isn't something that's very common in the Western world. But notice that Jesus doesn't avoid that, uh, and neither do the writers of Scripture. In fact, multiple times, in these chapters, Jesus refers to Satan, and he actually refers to him as, quote, the prince of this world. 
And he even um, speaks about his mission, why he's come, the cross that's coming, uh, in terms of spiritual warfare and the battle that's unfolding. Uh, Here are a few examples. Jesus says, Now it is time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Uh, In John 16, he says, the prince of this world now stands condemned. And again, in John 14, he says, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, meaning he has no power over me. He has nothing to accuse me with. Uh, But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus sees his death and resurrection partly, if not primarily, in terms of this spiritual war and our spiritual enemy, Satan, which means the adversary. Uh, He says, I've come to drive him out and destroy his work. I've come to uh, condemn him, to overturn his power, his dominion, his kingdom, and to bring my own. I've come to release prisoners uh, from the darkness and bring them into the light. Jesus says, I am the light. He is the darkness. But notice that Satan or our adversary or enemy working and scheming behind the scenes believes that he is destroying Jesus and overthrowing God's kingdom by that very same cross. Jesus says uh, the Father is allowing Satan to come and to carry out his own will in this situation so that the world may learn that I love the Father and that I obey the Father in all things. Uh, In other words, if you were to run that idea through the Exodus account, it's the equivalent of saying, hey, the harder Pharaoh's heart gets, the the more distinct evil is, the more it resists, then the greater the goodness of God will be put on display. I'm going to let Satan have his way in this situation, and you watch what happens. The beauty and glory of God is going to shine out as a result. Uh, But of course, Satan doesn't realize that. All he's thinking about is wanting to destroy Jesus, and he's going to use Judas to do it. In fact, at the start of chapter 13, which we read last Sunday, uh, we're told that the evening meal was in progress, and that the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. So there's some sort of backstory there uh, in the life of of Judas. Something is already in motion. A Judas did not do this on a whim, but rather he is caught between all of these forces that are converging in his heart. He's caught between the broken patterns of this world on the one hand, uh, societal pressure uh, to abandon Jesus and turn him over. He's faced with his own personal weakness, which he has been wrestling with 
for years. And of course, the temptation that Satan presents to him. So within the life of Judas is sort of this trifecta of forces uh, all converging to bring about this result. And really, the seeds of this moment were planted years earlier as Judas fell to temptation over and over again. The backstory is that he was helping himself to a portion of the funds that were for the group uh, to live off of. Essentially, it was a ministry fund for Jesus and his disciples. And because Judas was in charge, he would just skim a little off the top. Hey, 5% here, 10% there, uh, not a big deal. It was a series of small compromises. But over those years and through that uh, habitual sin that took root, uh, Satan was able to have an open door, so to speak, what the scriptures would call a foothold into his life to then be able to come and exert uh, undue pressure on him. An open door to then go and carry out his will uh, through Judas. So, you've got this uh, societal pressure on the one hand that's acting on this man. Uh, the, the authorities are saying, hey, this is the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to hand Jesus over. Uh, turn this man over to us. All we want to do is just question him and keep our nation safe. So there's this worldly pressure on the one hand. Then you've got years of temptation and compromise. On the other hand, this uh, greed and idolatry that has slowly but surely corrupted his heart over time. And then you've got this direct spiritual influence. You have uh, Satan stepping in to empower Judas uh, to do what Judas has already been pro uh, prompted or primed or tempted to do. Uh, as Satan, quote, uh, enters Judas, he is empowering Judas uh, to compromise, not for the first time, but for the thousandth time, as he has so many times before to do what is easy, and to make a little bit of money on the side. Uh, which, by the way, is exactly what Judas wants. That's his desire. What he wants to do in his own heart. And so between Judas and Satan, it's settled. Like, this is what I want, and now I have this extra wind in the sails, this extra force pushing me to embrace what I'm already wanting to do. So Jesus came to him and said, hey, what you are about to do, do it quickly. It's already settled, Judas. You know what you're going to do. It's a done deal in your heart. Now go. It says, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. They still don't understand uh, what's about to go down. Uh, and since Judas was in charge of the money, they thought it was related to that money. Oh, it's, it's something specific that he's supposed to do in spending the ministry funds. Uh, and it says, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And, and this line is just uh, an extra sort of chilling line uh, that John has inserted in the narrative. And it was night. You can imagine if you were watching it as a play that there was just this like darkness that descends and falls on the scene as Judas departs. He steps away from the light, away from the light of the world, away from the community of light that he's been a part of, 
and he steps out into the darkness. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Come follow me. And if you follow me, you will walk in the light. And, and here we see Judas uh, departing, led by the flesh within, feeling the societal pressure all around him, and the dark gravity of Satan's invitation. And the three of those things combine, and there he goes, out into the darkness. Uh, he caves to his temptation, conveniently ignoring what is ultimately true in the universe. And on the one hand, uh, this story is shocking and disturbing, right? We look at Judas from our vantage point in history as we sit here this morning, and it's really easy to just say, man, this is insane. Like, who would ever do this? Who, here is Jesus, the light of the world, the one who's coming to, to give eternal life to humanity, and you're going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Like when all the facts are laid bare on the table, like th this is insane. But on the other hand, I think we can actually sympathize with Judas and the forces at work within his heart, with the uh, things that he's up against, because we face these same forces. Uh, we experience some of these same patterns in our own lives, even as disciples of Jesus. And like Judas, in this narrative, it usually starts small. Uh, most people don't wake up in the morning and just think, you know what, I'm going to betray my best friend today. Like, it, it's usually not something that just uh, comes out of the blue but it starts small with little seeds planted in your mind, with small temptations that we uh, accept and cave to over time. Perhaps the temptation is to, to start looking down on your spouse, uh, to start uh, giving uh, subtle insults and critique, to begin to see their flaws far more than you see their beauty. And you start thinking over time slowly, you know what? Maybe I deserve something better. I mean, I wouldn't do anything about that. I wouldn't act on that reality, but I probably do. And then the flesh begins to sort of awaken and stir within us. And as you're wrestling with that in your flesh, you have these uh, societal pressures and temptations that come in to reinforce uh, the things that you're wrestling with. You have the ways of the world telling you that life is all about you, that you deserve it all, uh, that you deserve something better. You should have a fantastic, perfect spouse that never lets you down. Isn't that what you deserve? Isn't that what we see portrayed in movies or media? Yeah, you deserve that too. If you aren't satisfied, you need to free yourself. You need to go out and, and be you. You go and do you. So you have the flesh sort of stirring within these temptations that you're wrestling with, seeds planted over time, the societal voices 
sort of reinforcing those things and getting us to think in a certain direction. You have a lost culture speaking to your disordered desires within you. Uh, and, and then the enemy comes onto the scene. says, oh my goodness, look at this. What an opportunity for me. I don't even have to plant new seeds. All I have to do is pour a little gasoline on that fire. It's to, to inflame, to, to animate, to empower the things you are already wrestling with. I'm just going to pour some gasoline on the fire and watch it burn. And what gets manifested to the world is a porn addiction or adultery or the collapse of a marriage. And to the rest of the world, it looks very sudden. It looks very out of the blue. How could this happen? But in reality, it's been building for years. It is the sad fruit of a tree that was planted long ago. Or maybe that's not your issue. Uh, maybe the thing that you wrestle with as a disciple of Jesus is fear. And like most things, it, it started small years ago with minor, perhaps even legitimate concerns. Hey, I don't, you know, I don't want my kid to run in the street or I don't want this to happen or I really ought to save up a little money so I'm prepared for this event. It starts with something that's maybe small and wise and legitimate, but then it begins to grow from there. And, and, and you begin to focus on your fears, and they start to grow and spiral and, and, and begin to dominate your thinking. You begin to think about how can I protect myself from every uh, possible conceivable thing. And, and Satan comes along and all he has to do is poke and just say, what if? What if your child dies? What if you're broken, thrown out of your home? What if this happens? What if that person betrays you? What if? And then fill in the blank. And we already have that. That's already begun in our hearts. And so we start receiving that voice that says, what if, what about this? Go out and buy insurance for every conceivable thing. Isolate yourself from the world. Protect your heart. Do whatever you can to insulate yourself from every possible potential harm. And as you're wrestling with that in your own heart, you can even take the blinders off and take a wider view and you look around you at people in culture and you say, oh my gosh, they're fearful too. They're isolated too. They're anxious too. It's like this contagion, this virus set loose in our society and all of a sudden their fear feeds into my fear. And again, it's, it's those same three forces. It's this fleshly temptation within it, it's, it's this voice of the enemy, and it's, what is the culture doing? Oh, man, it's reinforcing what I'm thinking and feeling. And all of a sudden, uh, your, your anxiety rises, your heart rate is peaking, you have tension in your body, fear dominates your mind. You aren't trusting God or even biblical community. Instead, you let fear run rampant, devouring any sense of peace or joy that you might have 
in Jesus. And you despise the sense that you're not in control. Because you should be. Because that's the only way you can protect yourself from the things that you fear. And the moment something goes wrong, I mean the moment something legitimately happens to you, you raise your fist in anger. And you say, see God, I knew I couldn't trust you. That voice in my head was telling me all along that you couldn't be trusted. And now I have proof because look what happened. And and it manifests itself in this explosion, in this single moment of crisis in which you're throwing your faith out the window and, and despising God and biblical community. But it didn't happen in a day. It's not the, it wasn't the car accident that triggered that. that it, it's not the crisis moment. It actually started years earlier with the things you were wrestling with in your heart. Or maybe it's something as simple as gossip. And, and it starts by catching up with your friends, other ladies in the church, and just talking, Right? Hey, how's Kathy? What's she up to? Oh, you haven't heard? No, I haven't heard. Oh, you won't believe what happened to her. This is what happened. Really? Oh my gosh, tell me all of the dirty details. Really? Oh man, that is bad. Wow, Kathy is a mess. But you know what? I think Susan's even worse. Did you hear what she's been doing? Oh, really? Oh, I can one-up that. And it starts going and going and going. Uh, and, and it can often be sort of a subtle thing in the beginning, but over time you realize, you know what? I like this. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost addicted to this. I, I want to know about everybody's dark side and, while concealing my own at the same time. And these patterns uh, begin to sink in and it can be reinforced by other people in, in the community and the temptation that we're presented with. And slowly, over the course of years, it gets worse and worse until we wake up to realize, oh my gosh, there's no more faith and trust and intimacy in, in my relationships. Like, people don't trust me anymore. And, and, and I've actually become the type of person who would betray the trust of my friend for 30 pieces of silver. Or less. I would do it for a good conversation. But, but that doesn't happen overnight. It, it's years in the making. And we could run this pattern through countless examples, but notice what they all have in common. Uh, The thing, whatever it is, usually starts small, and it grows over time, and it usually involves a combination of, of Satan's dark invitation 
and the specific weaknesses that we carry within us, our own broken desires, then reinforced by the toxicity of those around us or the culture at large. All of these forces combine uh, to take something that is small and to build it up over time. And usually the way this works is that uh, there's no one sort of uh, grievous, shocking moment Rather, it's a bunch of small moments. None of, there are a bunch of small temptations, a bunch of small compromises in the same direction. None of them are big enough to sort of trigger, to set off the fire alarm, so to speak. They're all kind of under the radar. Oh, that's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. But over time, over the course of years, we began being shaped in a specific direction until... Boom, there's a crisis moment and it bursts into visible reality. All of a sudden, the, fr the friendship ends because they feel betrayed by your gossip. Or, or, or all of a sudden, the marriage collapses and everyone around you is in shock. How could this happen? Where were the warning signs? Uh, all of a sudden, you, you're walking away from the very concept of church or biblical community, like Judas, there's this crisis moment where it explodes and culminates and, and you're walking away into the darkness. As night falls on the scene. But what's happened underneath the surface, what happened in the life of Judas, is that he was shaped by hundreds of little moments, by hundreds of compromises in the same direction, slowly formed and shaped away from the light of Jesus and his kingdom and toward something else. Uh, all of a sudden, all of those uh, little moments culminate in this overwhelming desire in our hearts. And we say, you know what? The gravity of my desire is pulling this way. I can now say, this is what I want, and I want it more than Jesus. And, and the worst thing that can happen in that moment is to be approached by Jesus and, and hear from him, go ahead. If that's what you want, if that's what you really want, then go ahead. What you've decided to do, do it quickly. As night falls on the scene and, and we go to embrace the thing we never thought we would embrace. So, as we watch Judas leave the final meal and fade into the darkness, rather than scoff, and shake our heads, I actually want us to learn from him. I want us to react against the story of Judas by taking this to heart, uh, by calling out the forces uh, that push and pull on us, uh, by calling out and releasing uh, the, these things to God. Uh, our reaction to Judas should be to learn from his mistake, uh, to sort of renounce or come clean uh, with the things that we've been carrying, and to step into the light. That was his problem, is that when it came to that culminating crisis moment, he decided, you know what? This is my direction. 
I'm headed into the darkness. When in reality, he, he, he had a seat at the table. That, he would, that was his place. That, that he was welcomed to. And, and instead, he chose to walk the other way. So as we close, uh, two questions that I want us to contemplate. First, uh, where do you see societal pressure, dark temptation, and fleshly desire aligning to create areas of difficulty in your walk with God? Or the simplest way you could say that is what is your greatest temptation in this season of life? Might not be the same as last season or the next season, but right now, where do you feel those three things aligning and pulling on you? And number two, are there areas of repeated compromise that you can confess and surrender to Jesus this morning. Uh, scripture says, hey, well, first off, Scripture says you are a saint. You are a son and daughter of God. You belong to Him. Uh, but, but it also says in the same breath, hey, if we claim that we have no sin in our lives, it's probably because we're missing it. It's probably because it's, it's probably because it's hanging out in our blind spot or we're just not really self-aware. And, and so instead... As, as one of the things we do as disciples of Jesus is to check our blind spots. Or maybe it's not in the blind spot. Maybe it's like front and center in your life. But it's time to just confess to the Lord, hey, this is an area where, I, where I've not just made a mistake, but have been consistently compromising and letting it really settle into my heart and take root and begin to form and shape me in a specific direction. And so these questions uh, are just for you to contemplate and, and pray through. Uh, but in just a moment, we're going to come to the communion table as a family. And, and as we do that, we're going to celebrate and remember the very meal that Judas walked away from. And so I think it's really fitting that, that before we step toward that meal, that we have this moment. That we remember Judas who walked away from the meal because he desired other things. And we say, that's, that's not my story. That's not the path I want to take. I, I don't want to step away from the light because it's so, such a habitual thing or because I'm ashamed or, or whatever it is. Instead, we take a moment before we approach the communion table and say, no, 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 this, this is for me. I want to step toward the light, not out into the darkness. And as we do that in just a moment, as we step toward the table, toward the bread and the cup, I, I want you to have the sense that you are in good company, <laughs> right? Nobody likes to talk about their dark side, even to God, we don't like to just admit where we're at. And yet, as we step toward this meal, uh, we are in good company. I want you to see there around the table, Peter, who's so zealous, and yet he denies Jesus three times. Repeated compromise, but he's got a spot at the table. I, I want you to see John and, and his anger issues that he's been wrestling with for years, with a seat at the table. I, I want you to see Thomas always wrestling with doubt and skepticism. 
Is this, re- is this really true? Is this really as good as Jesus says it is with a seat at the table? We're in good company when we step toward this meal, when we step toward Jesus and the spot that he has for us. And as we do that, in just a moment, I want each and every one of us to recognize that you are not Judas. I'm going to say that again. You are not Judas. We, we are to learn from his example. We, we are to turn the other direction and not walk in those footsteps. But that is not who you are. If you are a disciple of Jesus, he says in this very moment at this very meal, man, you, you are among those who I have chosen. You're chosen by God. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are forgiven. He says, because of what I speak over you, you are cleansed. This is who you are. And as a result, it doesn't make sense to follow Judas. To follow the world or the flesh or our enemy because your place is at the table. And that's the invitation this morning, clear and simple. We just want to clear the air to speak out and release the things that we are carrying. Say, Lord, this is not of you, and I want to confess it and release it to you this morning. We clear the air, and then we come to the table, and we receive afresh from God. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll make some space uh, for historically what the church has always called confession and repentance, something we regularly do as disciples of Jesus, but we're going to make a a space for a corporate moment for us to do that. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sit with these questions, and I'd encourage you over the course of these next few minutes, you can take all the time you want to sit and listen. For some of us in the room, the answer to these questions are like blazingly obvious. They are, it is a burden to you. It is a source of shame or conviction or even condemnation that you're wrestling with. Lord, I know exactly what this is. It's been happening for years and I need to confess it before you. For others of us, it won't be so obvious. For some of us, it's, it might have to do with anxiety or with anger or with some other subtle compromise that we've just said, you know what, this is okay. Uh, I don't need to give this part of my life to Jesus. I, I can be that prideful person or that bitter person or that whatever it is, and we've left it alone. Uh, but we want to respond by stepping into the light, not further back into the darkness. Let's pray.